0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Make your way to Ezra chapter 4. We, we are continuing in the book of Ezra. I promise this week it's not a list of names and places and genealogies. It's, it's far more interesting, but... We're going to have to do some work for, for God by His grace to give us some encouragement. While you're finding your way there in Ezra 4, I'll give you a moment of levity that I experienced this week in getting ready for it. Uh, 13 or 14 years ago, I can't remember exactly which year it was, but I had the privilege of, of going to Israel, of spending a couple of weeks there. Uh, traveling around to different learning sites, learning from a a man who had spent his entire life there and was a a Hebrew scholar. We went to all these different places and it was a fantastic time. I I was in that place at that time when I was at the Sea of Galilee and I called home to check on Aaron and she told me that she was pregnant with Jude, our firstborn. So got this picture in our house of the phone booth I was on when she told me. It was a great trip. It was a lot of fun. The flood came. I shouldn't know the year it was because you got flooded out and your car floated away while I was gone. But that was a great moment. But you know when you travel, you, you go around and you try to think, well, I've got to bring things back for people. Like looking for the right thing to bring back to each person and what they would enjoy. And I found in Tel Aviv this historical society, so to speak, I guess you could call it that. Um, and they had produced this, this kit for you to build a two-scale wooden replica of the second temple. And I thought my in-laws whose boys at the time were very young and still at home, they would have so much fun building that. So I bought it, got it in my bag, got it home. And fast forward 13 or 14 years, this banker's box comes into our house and we open up the banker's box and lo and behold, it's the kit to build the second temple. It had never been built. And so we put it away in the attic. And I kid you not, you would think we planned this stuff. I promise. I really didn't plan it. About three weeks ago, my wife pulls that thing down, thinking, This will be fun for the kids to do. You know, there were a couple of holidays, Mondays off in school the last couple of weeks. This will be fun. None of us thinking that in three weeks we're going to be in Ezra chapter four where they're to trying to rebuild the second temple. And so there's this picture of our second temple that has been in disarray on our table for three weeks now, <laughs> made out of wood, which the dog likes to chew. Kids picking up fun pieces and carrying them around. Little windows that have to be cut out of the wood right there and then used in other places in the temple getting lost. Every time we eat, we got to move the temple. Every time we're done eating, we got to move the temple. Do we have the pieces? And the question surrounding this whole thing was, are we ever really ever going to get this done? I mean, are we really ever going to get it built? And are we going to have all the pieces we need to actually do it? I kid you not, I can't plan it that well. This week in Ezra chapter 4, that's the same question God's people have to be asking of themselves. Are we ever going to get this thing done? Are we ever going to be able to rebuild this temple? And the reasons they ask the question are very different than the reasons I ask the question. It's not whether or not a dog ate a piece or a piece fell down the air, vent. There are very real reasons why God's people in Ezra 4 are going to ask the question of themselves and of God can we actually ever get this done? And as we prepare to spend our time this morning in Ezra chapter 4, I want to be honest and straightforward from the get-go. Ezra chapter 4 is a very Lenten chapter of the Bible. You know, we're in the season of Lent, that 40-day period of preparation for the celebration of Easter. It's typically marked in the church calendar by a time of reflection, by a time of reflecting not only on the grace of God, but allowing the reflection of your heart to be seen by the Lord and by yourself in a time of repentance and just dealing with those things. Well, Ezra 4 is a very Lenten chapter. It's gonna be punctuated by frustration and opposition and confusion and profound injustice. And it's an important part of the story, not just of God's people then, but of the church today. Because one of the things I think that God gifts us with by his grace, even in Ezra chapter four, is a renewed reminder of just how honest and realistic the Bible is. I mean, so many of us come to the Bible thinking it's some other worldly book that has no real picture of what life is like for us. Now, there is an honesty and a realism to the Bible, if you've never actually engaged it, that Ezra chapter 4 helps us to see and be reminded by. And I say it's a particular grace for us today from the Lord because... The contemporary Western church is awash in a message that is so skewed in its sense of optimism that it's dangerous. In fact, in the largest church in America today, over 30,000 people will gather together and they will hear a message delivered very similar to the one that was delivered just over a month ago there where the pastor said, you just need to look in the mirror tomorrow morning and say to yourself, I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm rising to new levels, I'm excited about my future. And when you say that, it may not be true. Oh, well, maybe he's being, oh, okay, well, he's gonna come back around there. You may not be very healthy today, he said. Maybe you don't have a lot of things to look forward to. But don't forget, Scripture tells us in Romans, we have to call the things that are, that are not as though they already were. If you don't think you can have something good, you never will. The barrier is in your mind. He says, it's not your lack of talent that prevents you from prospering. It doesn't matter you're not good at your job. That's not the problem. The problem is in your mind. Your own wrong thinking can keep you from having God's best. The world's a whole lot better than you think it is. Has very little to do with things that Jesus would say. John chapter 16, when Jesus would look at his disciples and he would say, the day is going to come when they're going to put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They put you out of the synagogue. Oh, that's all in your brain. You just got to tell yourself you belong there. Then they won't kill you. It's foolishness. So one pastor says, Ezra chapter four. It's actually a grace to us today because Ezra chapter four, he said, is a dose of realism. It sobers up the too eager disciple who has never realized that the life of foxes and birds may hold luxuries that following the son of man never sees. You catch that? Jesus said the foxes have hold and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Ezra 4 is a dose of realism to those who may not have realized that the foxes and the birds may live a life of prosperity that those following the Son of Man may never actually see. Good morning. (laughs) Ezra chapter 4. There's a grace in the honesty, though. So this morning, as we read through it together... We want to listen for the voice of God's grace, the honest yet hopeful picture of reality of life and a following world for a follower of Jesus. What's there in that? Where's the grace in this for us today? So that's what we're gonna try to do. And by God's help, we're gonna be able to accomplish it. So let's look at Ezra chapter four. We'll start in verse one. I'm gonna read the first five verses. We're going to talk about them in their context in the story. Then I'm going to give you the big picture of the whole chapter because it's a little bit of an unusual chapter. And then we'll dive back deeper into this picture of honesty and reality. Ezra 4, chapter 1. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4 Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That span right there is about 15 to 20 years. And so there in the first five verses of Ezra chapter 4, you actually get the picture of what Ezra chapter 4 is really all about. Like, what were they trying to build? Let's look at it this way. What were they trying to build? You can talk to me, it's okay. Temple. What were they building the temple for? Like, what would you do with the temple? To worship the one true God. They were acting in obedience to what God had said, that they might worship him as he deserves, as he is worth, the way that he has commanded. Were they trying to build a nuclear reactor? No. Were they trying to stockpile weapons? No. No. They were acting in obedience to the Lord, doing that which seemed right and good. They even had the political commission of the king of Persia to do it. Yet the people of the land oppose what they're trying to do, even the good that they're trying to do. And if you look down at verse 24 of Ezra chapter four, you'll read the work on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia about 15, 18 years between when they started and when they got to actually go back and do it again. First five verses, you get the big picture. There is always going to be opposition to the work of God in his people and through his people. And sometimes it's going to see, I'll say it this way, it's going to seem like the opposition actually wins. There's always going to be opposition to the work of God in his people and through his people. And sometimes it seems as though the opposition wins. But even if injustice has the loudest voice, we get a glimpse in Ezra chapter four that it doesn't get the last word. Let's spend our time this morning unpacking that. Let me help you just get a picture of the whole chapter because I just did something that may seem unusual if you're following along. I went from verse five to verse 24. And that's because verses six through 23 are a parenthetical statement, so to speak. You know, back then they didn't have tab or indents or places to quote things or bullet things or move them around. Writers would say things that would give you an indication that they've moved on to a different time or a different story, and as you would read it, you would catch it. So verses 6 through 23 actually narrate a situation that God's people faced about 70 years forward from verses 1 through 5 as they were trying to rebuild the city and build the walls. And there's a reason why Ezra inserts them here in chapter 4, and we'll get there in just a little bit. But before we get to why you've got this enormous parenthetical statement, and really the time of just building the temple is verses 1 through 5 and verse 24, let's spend a little bit of time looking at the opposition that God's people faced and those who actually opposed them, because it will help us form that better picture of reality that you and I have to face living life now in a fallen world. So back into the first five verses, if you read it like a human... The response that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the heads of the father's houses gave to those that came to them and said, hey, we'll build with you. We've been sacrificing and worshiping your God as you do. We'll build with you. The response they gave them seems a bit cold at first, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. What position were they in to refuse that kind of help? 42,000 we saw last week come back and they have to rebuild not only their homes, but they've got to rebuild the temple. And here, a whole other group of people come and say, We want to help you. We worship your God and sacrifice your God just like you do. And yet, Zerubbabel looks at him and says, You have nothing to do with us in the building of this temple, this house to our God. Doesn't that seem cold? There's a little bit we have to understand about these people that he's speaking to that will help us understand a bit of the kind of opposition that they face then that will help us gain a new perspective on how you and I deal with the kind of opposition that we deal with even in our lives today. Verse 1 of Ezra chapter 4 clues us in to these people who come and seem like they're giving this offer of help and seem like they have a a commonality amongst God's people then and sacrificing to God because Ezra calls them adversaries. What makes them adversaries? Well, the key there is in the description of the people when it says we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So... When people would read that story a hundred years later and God's people would hear it, immediately in their mind, that little description clues them into a timeline in the history of God's people. So when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, Asar Haddon was the king of the Assyrian empire at the time. And when the Assyrians would conquer a land, what they would do is they would take people from other lands that they had conquered and they would repopulate that new land with exiles from other lands that they had conquered. So this week, go to your Bible, go to 2 Kings chapter 17. Spend some time in verses 24 through 33. It narrates the story of who these people are. I'll give you kind of the, 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 the short version so that you can understand what's happening here. When the Assyrians repopulate the northern kingdom of Israel, in the city of Samaria that was the capital, they brought in Babylonians and Hamathians and all these people from all these different cities. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. Now you're going to go read it this week, aren't you? God sent lions amongst them and the people who were repopulating the northern kingdom. And so the king of Assyria, Sarhaddon, he looks at the, the land that he had just taken and he sees these lions coming to devour people and they reason, well, whatever the God of that region is must be angry. So I just took a bunch of priests from that place. So he says, why don't we send a priest back there and teach all these people that we brought into that area about the God of that land and about their law, and maybe he'll stop sending lions to kill people. So they sent a priest of Israel back into the land to teach people about the Lord. But 2 Kings 17 verse 29 says, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places the samaritans had made every nation in which the cities that they lived and the second king seventeen thirty three, says though they feared the lord they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they had been carried away from So, the people that populated Samaria, which was the northern kingdom, were made up of people from regions that the Assyrians had conquered, and they had learned about the law of God from a priest that was sent back there. But even though they learned the law of God and sacrificed to Yahweh as they learned, they still worshiped all the gods from where they came from. This is a picture of what theologians or philosophers would call syncretism. What one of our pastors here, what Shelby would call a truth smoothie. Just take what's true from this place and this place and this place and this place and these people, put it all together, blend it all up and whatever comes out, there you go. Just stay happy. That is the makeup of the people who came to Zerubbabel and Joshua and said, we want to help you build the temple. We sacrifice to your God just like you, but not quite. Not quite just like us. And it's not the point of the whole chapter, but I don't want you to miss it in the whole narrative process of the story. If you step away from the story for a second and think about our own lives now, this moment in the life of God's people, when when the the people of the land come to them and offer to help, and they're just gonna try to help them rebuild the temple, and wisdom and discernment comes upon Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the heads of the families, and they refuse the help. It's a very small, but a very honest picture of why even today in our own time, the ecumenical impulse amongst religious people is not as simple as some want to make it seem. Don't we all think the same thing, believe the same thing, want the same thing? Why can't we do all these things together? I don't think we sacrifice to the same God for the same reasons. It's why theology matters. It's why the truth behind what we believe matters. Were they building roads? No. Were they digging wells? No. They were rebuilding the temple, the house of the Lord. Think about it. If they had received the help from the people of the land as they had offered, they get their resources, they get their manpower, they all come together and they rebuild this temple, who gets to say who gets to be the priests? We know from 2 Kings chapter 17 that they pick people from any type of land or people they had come from to be priests. Who gets to be priests? Who gets to say what gets sacrificed in that temple and to who it gets sacrificed? Didn't we help out just as much as your people did? Sometimes we're on the same team. Sometimes we're not. And it takes wisdom and discernment to be able to figure that out. Zerubbabel and Joshua, when you understand the story, possessed a wisdom and a discernment that had come from God so that when these people came, they could say, you have no part in this with us. You might call them by the same name, but we don't worship him the same way. We're going to build the house that he's commanded us to build. The house that even the king has given us the command to go and build. And here's the thing. Again, try to make it a little bit personal. I know these stories can seem so far away. Try to make it a little bit personal. Isn't it in the moments when we have an idea of the good we think we should be about? Isn't it in the moments when we have an idea of the way we want to do good for others and the strategy by which we should go about it? Isn't it in the moments when that idea and that strategy of ours isn't received by someone else? Isn't it in those moments that we get a real picture of the motive in our heart for why we wanted to do something? I mean, isn't it in the times when our ideas aren't received or when someone else takes our idea and accomplishes some in for it and we have a response to it, isn't it in those moments when the motive of our heart for why we wanted to do something, to be a part of something, to see something even good done, revealed to us? That's what you see here. See, these people came and said, we will build with you. They didn't ask. The language is actually very strong. They said, we're going to be a part of this. We worship God like you do. And they said, no, no, you don't. And in verses four and five, those same people now begin to discourage the people of Judah, making them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. See, what they wanted was say. They wanted influence. They wanted control. If we get to be a part of building this temple, then we get to be a part of saying how it's going to be used. What they wanted was control in the situation. And when their plans and their offers weren't received, the real impulse of their heart begins to be seen. They went from offering help and not becoming cheerful advocates for what God was doing to becoming adversaries to what God was doing in and through his people. And look, again, it's a very Lenten chapter. It's a moment of even honest reflection for us. Because isn't the same thing true of us when even the good we want to do and the way we want to do it isn't received by someone else? That often the real motive for why we wanted to do it is seen. When the frustration and the discouragement and the envy begins to arise, isn't that a gracious light that God has shined on our heart for us to see that maybe what we really wanted was the advancement about something of us more than the good we wanted to do? There's a grace in this. God's people are, they're trying to go about obediently worshiping the Lord the way that he has commanded, doing the good that he's called them to do. And they're opposed for it they're opposed for it at first from people loosely connected to them people familiar with the worship of yahweh and the worship of the one true god but the opposition is going to expand it's going to come from different angles this is where verses 6 through 23 begin to come into play verses 6 through 23, this parenthetical statement is actually a collection of letters. It's two letters that were written by the people of the land to the kings of Persia at the time, asking the kings to step in and stop God's people, not from building the temple, but from rebuilding the city and the walls around it. So the middle of chapter 4 is a flash forward about 70 or 80 years. Ezra is going to say in his own time, this opposition that we're facing now is nothing new. It's exactly like the opposition that existed 70 years ago when the temple was being rebuilt. And then when God's people would hear the stories read and the, and the scrolls opened, even now in the 21st century, we hear the stories and we realize it's always been this way. And as you'll see next week in Ezra 5 and 6, God remains faithful. The temple gets rebuilt and the Passover gets celebrated. In Nehemiah, the city gets rebuilt and the walls get rebuilt. And this parenthetical moment in the story is a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But it also gives us a picture into the nature of the opposition that God's people often face. The, The work of God in his people and the work of God through his people often feel. So let's listen to it and see if some of it doesn't sound familiar and we're going to try to talk it through and make it as as real for today as we can. And the first letter in verse six, you get the the first letter to a king that you'll probably be more familiar with the name of Xerxes. Verse six says, in the reign of Asaharus, you probably know him as Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem now we don't know what they said and what the king said we just know they did it then Ezra gives us another letter in verse 7 in the days of Artaxerxes so the next king Bishlam and Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes king of Persia the letter was written in Aramaic and translated Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows Rehum the commander, shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy now of the letter that they sent. So they're naming themselves as the authors. They're representing everyone who from the Persian perspective lives beyond the Euphrates, beyond the river. That's where the land of Israel was located. From the Persian perspective, everything beyond the Euphrates was just beyond the river. So these are the people that the Syrian empire had settled in that area decades before. They identify themselves as the authors and they're writing to the king, to Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river. They sing greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made of the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why it was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, you slow down, begin to read it like a human. You begin to see that the opposition that was mounted against the work of God in his people and through his people is not unique to their day. There's nothing really new under the sun. In verse five, those who opposed what God was doing through his people, the good that they were doing, they tried to bribe the city councilors to get the city councilors to step in and make them stop. Throw some money at it, maybe that can solve the problem. You read the letters, you see that that kind of opposition carried on in verse 12. They made false accusations about God's people. They're rebuilding a rebellious and wicked city. If that didn't work, they followed that up with trying to to tickle the ears of the king, to try to stir up his own internal sense of of greed and fear. If this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they're not gonna pay you. You're not gonna get your custom, you're not gonna get your tribute, you're not gonna get your toll. The royal revenue, the bottom line, it's going to be impacted if you let them do this. Then they would try to flatter the king, right? Oh, we, we eat the salt of the palace. You're so kind, you're so benevolent. We can't stand by and watch you be dishonored by these people. That's why we write. And if they can't incite him that way, they then begin to exaggerate and twist historical realities to suit their own argument. Go back and read in the record of your fathers. You'll see they caused rebellions and seditions. And then if all else fails... And this is why I wish we were in a truly like political time of the year. Like if we were really in a political cycle because some of this would seem so real and familiar to you. If all else fails, just go to straight out fear. If this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. A vote for them is a vote for obliteration. All right, that's the common political language, isn't it? Just all out Fear. If you let this happen, everything that's yours beyond the river is gone. Now, can you imagine for a moment how frustrating it was for God's people? One, when they're trying to rebuild the temple and they constantly face this opposition for trying to do what God's commanded them to do. But then think about it, 70, 80 years down the road, trying to rebuild the city and the walls. And at every step, someone's lying, someone's accusing, someone's twisting, someone's deceiving, someone's bribing, someone's trying to stop the good you're trying to do that God's called you to do. Can you imagine how frustrating that is? Now imagine how frustrating it feels to realize that what they were trying to do actually worked. It actually worked. Look at verse 17. The king sent an answer to this letter, to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greetings, the letter you sent me has been plainly read before me. I make a decree, a search has been made And it's been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Mighty kings have been over Jerusalem. Yeah, David, Solomon, that's true. They ruled over the whole province beyond the river. Yeah, that's true too. To whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Well, that's true too. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of me, the king? Why should they hurt me? Sometimes dishonesty, sometimes manipulation, sometimes false accusation, sometimes what we see played out in Ezra chapter 4 happens and it pays off. Sometimes there's injustice and you simply can't do anything about it. Contrary to contemporary Western American preaching, Christians do not have a get out of injustice card that you can keep in your pocket and play whenever you want. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes the opposition, the accusation, the manipulation, the lying, the opposition to what God is doing in his people and through his people. Sometimes it seems to pay off and there's nothing that you can do about it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you need to know it hated me before it hated you. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own but because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore remember, the world hates you. Remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul would write to the churches. Luke would record it in the book of Acts. It's through many trials, tribulations, big word, injustices, opposition, that you'll enter the kingdom of God. Ezra chapter 4. It's a a chapter of realism for God's people, especially in the 21st century. And if we listen... We can hear the voice of God's grace speaking to us even in these verses because there is something that God does even with places like Ezra chapter four in his grace for our maturity and for our joy. He does something with these verses and one of the most profound things that God will do even with Ezra chapter four is he will begin to do the work of reshaping our expectations. Without listening to his voice In his word, the voices of the world around us want to shape our expectations about life in this world that do not line up with God's word. God in his grace, even Ezra chapter four, God does the work by his spirit of reshaping our expectations. The world is still broken. Paul told the church in Rome, Romans chapter 8, even creation itself is groaning under the weight of sin. There's still a longing even in the created order for the day in which God is going to return and make right all that the devastating work of sin has torn apart and made wrong. The world is still broken. Many of our expectations about life in this world need to be reshaped around the reality that God even gives us in his word. And here's the other reality that needs to be shaped for you and I. When we experience This kind of opposition or any kind of opposition. Take it out of the work of the church or or the good that God has called the church to do going forward. Just think about it in your own life. When you experience the impact of a broken world, some manner of injustice or opposition to what you're trying to do, you need to realize God is not singling you out for that. This is one of the devastating negative consequences of the day in which we live right now, That's so addicted to the kind of social media technology that we have. We live on that thing when people give false impressions of the type of life they wish they lived and we think it's sunshine and roses and six packs for everybody but us. We're like Linus or Pigpen over here with the dust cloud all around us and God's making it great for everybody else over here but me. No, that's not the way it is. He's not singling you out for what you're experiencing. And in what you're experiencing, you're not alone. See, that's the inevitable consequence of that voice that keeps wanting to tell us we're suffering some kind of injustice at the hands of God in our, in our own life now, that he's singling us out. And because he's singling us out, no one else is going through it. Therefore, I'm all alone in it. It's not true. It's simply not true. Again, it's the the consequence of, of listening to the voices that try to shape our perceptions of ourselves and our world today. We begin to think we're all alone in what we're suffering. We think we're all alone in what we're experiencing. Everybody else is putting this picture of reality out that seems so different to mine, therefore God must be singling me out for whatever it is that I'm experiencing that I'm suffering I mean, I think it's so strange, and it's not exactly the story, so I'll come back, but I think it's so strange that it's in the 21st century, in our day and age, with these kind of voices, that we think the bravest thing that people can do is share a picture of themselves that's natural. If that's not the consequence of thinking that there's supposed to be something else, that everyone else is experiencing something that's gonna define who they are and how they should look and how they should experience life, that the bravest thing you can do is be honest That's messed up. There's a voice of grace even in Ezra 4. This is reality in a fallen world. It's still broken. And what you experience isn't God singling you out and everyone else gets sunshine and roses. And you're not alone. There's a grace that he speaks when you and I allow him to reshape our sense of expectation, when we come to terms with reality. But there's another aspect to the voice of grace that he gives us, especially in the 21st century, even in Ezra chapter 4. Because some people can read Ezra chapter 4, and this is, the church has done this for a long time, and you can find books on Ezra about this, and we begin to think that therefore it's the state, It's the government, it's the pagan people, it's the people of the lands. Everybody's hiding around a bush trying to oppose the church. They're all out to get you. Everybody's opposing you. Everybody's trying to cause some kind of injustice to you. Everybody's out for your ill and your harm. Well, if you wanna look at the world that way, guess what? It's gonna look like everybody's out to get you. You can find that boogeyman behind every bush you want. And that's how sometimes people take Ezra chapter four, but that's not what the story's saying. But it would be as equally damaging and dangerous for God's people to live on the other side, which is where a lot of the contemporary church lives, in believing that there really is no true opposition to what God is doing in his people and through his people. Living as though you just have to look in a mirror and tell yourself, I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna get that. See, God is very clear in his word that it's a very dangerous thing to live believing that there is no true opposition to what he's doing. He's very clear that skulking around at all times is one who's bent on deceiving and dividing God's people, on frustrating the advancement of what God is doing in his people and through his people. God is very clear in his word. He even describes the enemy himself as a deceiver, That in an effort to divide and in an effort to destroy, he attempts to convince God's people of things that aren't true. He speaks lies about God. He speaks lies about his people. He takes things that are good and twists them and turns them for our destruction. The Bible describes the devil himself as a deceiver and as an accuser. He will attempt to accuse God's people in such a way that their confidence in the faithfulness of God begins diminished. He will tell you that that thing that's true about you, that you've kept to yourself for so long and been so afraid to share, been so afraid to confess, been so afraid to deal with, that that thing that's true about you that you try to hide and keep in the dark, that's the thing that's too far gone for God. You're beyond the end of his grace. He'll begin to accuse you and tell lies in an effort to divide and begin to destroy. This is why I love what one British pastor, Derek Thomas, said. He said the devil himself lives in a grand delusion that he's not defeated and he wants you to believe the same. You see behind every manipulation, every lie, the accusation, behind even in the injustice. We see in Ezra chapter 4. You hear the whispers of the evil one. It's not the government that's the enemy. It's not the people of the land that are the enemy. In fact, Paul told the elders of the Ephesian church before he left them, what's going to divide and what's going to destroy? It stands the greatest reality of coming from within. It's not flesh and blood that we're called to do battle against. It's powers and principalities looking to destroy and divide. So one pastor would say, wherever there are Jesus-loving, gospel-proclaiming Christians, there is an evil one lurking to divide. One who hates what God is doing in his people, one who opposes what God does through his people, and he desires to use any means. People of the land, false teachers, unstable souls from within the church to intimidate and frustrate God's people from God's work. Ezra chapter four is an honest picture of reality. There is and there always will be until the day Jesus comes, opposition to the work of God in his people and through his people. And I'll be really honest with you because it's 11 and I'm just going to. As a teacher, it's very difficult to figure out where you stop when you present something like this. You see, Ezra technically is one book with Nehemiah, right? It's one story. Well, in history, they've taken them apart, even though they work in the same story. So then as we go through Ezra, you got to figure out how you're going to break it up when you go teach it. And the reality of it is Ezra chapter four is part of a narrative arc that's connected with five and six because the story is God's people go to rebuild the temple. They get opposed. The opposition increases. God intervenes. The temple gets rebuilt and they celebrate Passover. Whole story. But I decided not to do the whole arc in one week. And I decided not to do it in one week and to deal with just Ezra 4 because I think particularly in our day and age, we need to wrestle with the realities of Ezra chapter 4 before we move on from them too quickly. It's way too easy for us if we did the whole story at one week to go, well, here's opposition, here's intervention, and here's celebration. We love it over here. Bypassing the picture of reality that exists in a place like Ezra chapter four. Sometimes people make false accusations and flatter the king and they get away with it. Sometimes there is going to be opposition and injustice that you face opposing the, even the good that you try to do. I love how Kevin DeYoung said it. He said, happily ever after is not always on our timeline. The good guys don't always win, but they never win ultimately lose see that's where the voice of grace comes in this parenthetical part of ezra chapter 4 because as god's people would read ezra chapter 4 throughout the years they would recognize that opposition to what god was doing in and through his people it's not new And as they would read 4, they'd get to 5 and 6 and realize the temple got built, celebration and worship restored. As they'd read Nehemiah and hear opposition came in the building of the city, and the building of the walls, they'd hear the story. God intervened. They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the walls. God remains faithful to his word, to his promises and to his people. He always does and he always will right the wrongs. He will always deal with the injustice. We just don't know when or how he's going to do it. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was almost instantaneous. For Daniel, it took almost a whole night. For Joseph, it took decades. And for the saints in Hebrew 11, they died without receiving the promise. It took their entire lifetime to understand how God was going to right the injustice that they suffered. But He's promised to act. He's shown himself faithful to act. He always will act, but it will be in his time, for his purpose and his glory, and we know that that results in nothing but our joy. As we spend time in Ezra chapter 4, God would want his people to be reminded not only of his faithfulness but the endurance and the perseverance that a confidence in him produces. This is how God would call his people to live in spite of the injustice and the opposition that we face. Paul would look at the churches and say churches you need to endure this kind of opposition and injustice and suffering like a good soldier. And it's not an endurance that comes because you have more grit or more tenacity than someone else. It's not because you're smarter than someone else. It's not because you can hold on to the bar longer. It's because you're confident of the grip of the faithful God that he has on you. It's a confidence born out of an increasing faith in the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness produces the kind of endurance and perseverance that's required to live in the face of such opposition and injustice. It's not a cold, white-knuckled endurance and perseverance. It's a grace-driven perseverance that allows us, like the widow in Luke 18, to continually cry out to God to step in and make right what others have caused wrong, to make right what sin has made wrong. Friends, the good guys, they don't always win, but they never ultimately lose. And you and I, you and I know the end of the story. You realize it makes all the difference in the world to know how the story ends. If you're a Patriots fan in here, you know exactly what I mean. Twenty-four to three, can Tommy pull it out? Sweating buckets during the whole Super Bowl. It makes all the difference in the world when you watch it two days later on DVR, doesn't it? You know how it ends. You and I know how the story ends. And we know that our perseverance and our endurance comes not from our ability to make it happen, but from the faithfulness of God who's always been faithful to his word and to his promise, who acts not according to our timeline, but according to his glory and his purpose for our joy. See, we get to be reminded of this every single week as we gather together, not only in hearing from God's word, but in responding to God's word together as we receive communion. No one suffered more false accusation, no one suffered more opposition, no one suffered more injustice on this earth than our Lord Jesus Christ. After he willingly laid his body on the cross to die, a death he did not deserve to die, but died as a substitute sacrifice in our place for our sins, after he laid his body on the cross and exhausted the just wrath of God in our place for our sin, his body was laid in a tomb. Have some empathy next time you read the Gospels and you read about the disciples' response after Jesus was crucified. If there was ever an Ezra 4 moment in the history of God's people, it had to be those three days. Could it get any worse? Hope is way out here. It doesn't seem like anything good is going to come. But God's faithful to his word, to his promises, and to his people. He always acts, and he does it in his time for his purpose and his glory and our joy. This week, as you go through Ezra chapter 4 with your friends, with your family, with your community, You may realize that right now life seems very much like an Ezra 4 moment for you. In chapters five and chapters six, they seem so far away, so far gone. This morning, as we respond to God's word, and you take the bread and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and you dip it in the blood, remembering His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, be encouraged. Be encouraged even when life looks like Ezra 4, all hope may seem lost. God remains faithful. He always has. And he always will. For his glory and your joy. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond together this morning. God, we thank you for your word that doesn't hide from us the realities of life. It doesn't hide from us the realities and the consequences and the effects of our sin. It doesn't hide for us And hide for us things we face until the day we get to see you face to face. God, we ask that you, for your glory, for our joy, by the work of your Holy Spirit together with your word, you would help to reshape our expectations. You would help to retune our ears to hear your voice more clearly and more loudly. Lord, you would help us grow in our confidence in your faithfulness that we might be a people who can endure and persevere, not by sheer will but in confidence knowing who you are, what you've done, and what you've promised to do. We ask that you would make us this people. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.